Okay, here I am. Hello. <laughs> um, it's really, really nice to be here. Really, really nice to be here. I just... Uh, hang on, I'll do this for us. I just um, walked from the train station, as you do, you know. Uh, and one of the striking things, I followed signs to the Buddhist Centre all the way here. You know, they just said Buddhist Centre this way. There's a synagogue and a Chinese restaurant, I think. And then uh, the Buddhist Centre, and then the Buddhist... And I just managed to find her here just by following signs to the Buddhist Centre, which I thought was, in itself, a very, very good thing. And then um, I was really, I'm really struck by the area. I mean, I've, I've been coming along to the Manchester Buddhist Centre for a few years, pretty much since the start, occasionally. And um, it's a fantastic area, isn't it? Just around here. I mean, it's so cool. Can I... <laughs> <laughs> I was saying downstairs it's so groovy, which is a, you know, ages me horribly, but it is. It's such a, <laughs> such a groovy area, isn't it? I mean, I've just come from Bethnal Green. It's much groovier than Bethnal Green, I think. <laughs> I mean, there's like there are all these people out in the streets. There's cafes everywhere. It's got this lovely kind of studenty, kind of relaxed, trendy but not too trendy kind of feeling. It's great. It's fantastic. Fantastic. You know. So yeah, I'll hang out here. <laughs> And it was nice to have an excuse to come just to go to the art shop down the, oh, go to the art shop down the road. I mean it's got its dark side, of course. <laughs> just the odd shooting. Um, but then Bethnal Green's much the same, I know. And that's at the Buddhist Centre. <clears throat> okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk a little bit. I'm going to give a few kind of notes on the, um, the chapter 7 of the Vimrakoti Nadesha. How long am I supposed to be speaking for? Okay, that's, that's fine. Thank you, that's great. Okay, let's, get, let's try and get that clear. Yes, yeah, so I want to just give a few notes on the um, uh, Vimrakoti Nadesha, just this chapter, the start of this chapter really, called The Goddess, chapter 7 of the Vimrakoti Nadesha. In a way, they're kind of asides. So um, all I'm going to do is just give you a few asides from the text, a few reflections from the text. Yeah. Um, some of the asides, I frankly don't seem really warranted, but they're things I wanted to talk about. <laughs> As you, if you do lots of talks, you just get to find out how you can just say what you want to say, whatever subject you're given. <laughs> it's one of the things you develop as an order member. You know. Go anywhere, be asked to speak about anything, you can get to say what you want to say <laughs> So this chapter 7, the goddess, starts like this. Thereupon Manjushri, the crown prince, addressed the Lichavi Vimlakirti, Good sir, how should a bodhisattva regard all living beings? Vimlakirti replied, Manjushri, a bodhisattva should regard all living beings as a wise man regards the reflection of the moon in water or as magicians regard men created by magic. He should regard them as being like a face in a mirror, like the water of a mirage, like the sound of an echo, like a mass of clouds in the sky. Fantastic start to the chapter, isn't it? The simple question, how, how should uh, the Bodhisattva regard living beings? And you get this wonderful uh, answer, yeah? like clouds in the sky. You should regard them like a face in, your, in a mirror. Yeah? So um, I was very struck by that, really look, looking at it again. I haven't looked at the Vimrakoti Nadesha for a long time. I, re- I just have, remember it as this wonderful text and Bante's wonderful uh, lectures on them, which give them a sort of glow, uh, even added glow almost. So first of all, you know, the question is being asked, um, 
how does a Bodhisattva regard all beings? So from the point of view, as it were, of enlightenment, from the point of view of seeing things as they really are, what, what do we look like? What does the world look like? Yeah? What, how do you see things? And he says he sees them, you see them like a reflection of the moon in water, and so on. There's a great long passage about that, but I won't uh, read it out. Um, it's actually rather wonderful just to read all the, the long descriptions. It's actually also slightly funny. It's quite interesting that in this text, quite clearly, there, there's little moments of humour, like there's the erection of a eunuch, for instance. Um, <laughs> clearly it was meant to be funny, I would have thought. Uh, people didn't do, mm, yes, oh yes, like, you know, clouds in the sky, oh yes, and erections of human, oh yes. You know, it's obviously meant to be a bit of a gag. Uh, that's part of the... Um, Part of the meaning, I think, is there's an element of play in the Bodhisattva's seeing of all beings. It's not, it's not taking it all too seriously. Um, something wrong about taking things too seriously, in the wrong way. So basically what Vimrakurt is saying is when um, a someone, a Bodhisattva, let's not worry too much about these terms, they get, we can trip up on them a bit, really. When someone um, has seen through egotism, when, when they've no longer um, seduced by the idea of I, when they're no longer infatuated with this concept of me and living out of that infatuation, um, this is how they see things. Um, They see everything like a reflection of moon in the water, like a magician regards men created by magic, like the sound of an echo, like a mass of clouds in the sky. Um, This is how you see things that they exist and not exist. They don't exist in a, a way that we uh, think they do. Uh, they're changing, they're, they're sort of shape-shifting. They don't exist in the, in the way that our egotism creates them. Of course, crea- egotism creates a me first and then creates a world in relationship to me. We are kind of infatuated with ourselves, so much so, sort of metaphysically infatuated with ourselves, so much so that... We really think everything surrounds us uh, and we make it into things that surround me. And as soon as that great knot of ego is untied, it doesn't look like that anymore. It looks like everything is a kind of play, is a kind of magic show. Um, that's how it seems. Yeah? Um, it doesn't have an inherent existence, is the usual way of putting it, but some of these things start to sound a bit technical, but that's one way. It doesn't have an inherent existence. There's nothing... Behind it, if you to me, it's just like clouds in the sky. It's just like the reflection of the moon in water. Yeah. Um, interestingly, though, and I think this follows a, a you know, thoroughgoing logic. I mean, this is a very poetic text. But don't think that poetic texts are therefore flowery and therefore fantastical. Anything that's genuinely poetic has its, within it a rigorous logic, just as, log- just as rigorous as a philosophical logic. It's just... The logic has been turned into poetry. You see what I mean? People tend to think that poetry, imagination, is a sort of a fluffy person's way in, as it were. But it's just as taxing, just as rigorous as mathematics or um, science or philosophy. It's just that that logic has been turned into the drama of poetry. So it's interesting that the, the, the logic is quite obvious and it's quite precise. Well, it's not quite precise, it's precise. So... Manjushri then asks further, it says, Noble Sir, if a Bodhisattva considers all living beings in such a way, how does he generate the great love towards them? Exactly the right question, isn't it? Okay, so if you've seen through 
this sort of knot of self. And if the world looks to you like the reflections of the moon in a lake, like uh, images uh, that just come and go, like clouds, like stars in the sky, um, and so on, if they seem to you in some sense unreal, in other words, or not wholly real, or not real in the way that people assume they are, how do you, get, how do you generate the great love? Because, of course, the danger is that you end up with this sort of strangely alienated, sort of everyone's just like dream-like, so it doesn't really matter what happens to them. And actually that is a problem of a misunderstanding of, of Buddhist wisdom, I think. Uh, so Manjushri's question is exactly right, isn't it? So if you see me, if, if you thought of it as two people, you'd be saying, OK, if you see me, because I see me as this sort of really important central focus in the universe, but you're saying that I'm just like this reflection of the moon, I'm sort of not here. I'm sort of here, but sort of not here. The reflection's there, but you go to touch the reflection and it's not there. You know what I mean? So you're saying that of me. So I'm that, that rather worries me about your relationship to me. You know what I mean? What does that mean in, your, in terms of your relationship? How do you come to love me? Because all human beings want to be loved. Um, um, Vimala Kirti replies, Manjushri, when a Bodhisattva considers all living beings in this way, he thinks, just as I have realised the Dharma, so should I teach it to living beings. Thereby, he generates the love that is truly a refuge for all loving, living beings. The love that is perfect because free of grasping. The love that is not feverish because free of the passions. The love that accords with reality because it is equanimous at all three times. The love that is without conflict uh, because free of the violence of the passions. The love that is non-dual because it is involved neither with the external nor with the internal. The love that is imperturbable because totally ultimate. So that's quite straightforward. Um, <laughs> and it goes on at, at, at some length, carrying on like that. Um, but this is fascinating, isn't it? So the, ar- the, the argument is, how do you see, the, how do you see reality? Here's, here's how I see it, like the reflection of the moon. OK, that's a bit worrying, because how, do you, that, how does that mean you see other people? Because really when we talk about reality, principally we're talking about other people. It's, it's a very abstract idea, reality, as if... Reality is this sort of, sort of philosophical or even scientific medium. But largely, practically, and life principally is a practical matter, reality means other people, doesn't it? That's the reality we bump up against most um, deeply. The most fundamental aspect of reality is other people. So what's your attitude to them, given that you see them in that way? And he says... Uh, as soon as I see them in this way, my attitude is love, the great love, basically. Uh, it's a lovely phrase, a great love, isn't it? Um, yeah, so I was very, very struck by that, that when I see things as they are, uh, Vimalakirti is saying, what I feel is love for you. So, Manjushri, what I feel is love towards you, I feel love towards all beings. That's what I feel. I, I have a sense that it doesn't say, then I remind myself, that as soon as I see things as they are, or closer to how they are for us, perhaps. What I feel is love. There you go. That's what I feel. Um, I don't need to generate it. Um, I don't need to add it to the experience. The love I feel is a natural arising when I see the moon's reflection in the lake. The natural arising when I see uh, clouds in the sky. 
I don't need to do anything about it. There it is. Um, so this is really the true test of any kind of spiritual insight, any kind of spiritual uh, vision, attainment, goal, or however you want to put it. Um, and I think it's something that we should apply rigorously to ourselves and rigorously to other people. Um, any kind of insight, any kind of seeing into the nature of things leads to an overwhelming feeling of gratitude, a feeling of generosity and a feeling of love. If it doesn't do that, it's not a spiritual matter. It really just isn't. It's something else. It's like a weird head game, I think, I'm afraid. <laughs> um, when, what little breakthroughs I've had, and uh, I've had less than I'd rather hoped for when I was young. I remember when I first got involved, I thought, yeah, three years, give me, give me three years, I'll be there. Mm, you know, doing, vibing off great love. But it seems to have taken much longer. Um, what breakthroughs I've had, um, they're always accompanied um, when they happen, which isn't as much as I'd like, but um, when they've happened, they're always accompanied by a, a great sense of gratitude and a feeling of almost unbelievable good luck. Um, that's how I felt it. Unbe almost unbelievable fortune, uh, good fortune. Uh, very, very, I think that's a sort of key note to deeper experience. You think, good heavens, fancy me experiencing this. I just come from a little old town in Henley Norden, in Warwickshire. Fancy me experiencing this. I remember the first time uh, I had the great honour to ordain someone, which is something... Of course, I would never have imagined myself doing. Um, I was walking back from the ordination kuti in Spain, and it really just, I thought, oh, this is incredible. How did I, ma I was 40 at the time, I remember. And uh, how, did I, how did I get, this is incredible. What good fortune to be in this position. I just come from a small town. Um, my, uh, my family ran a coach company. I've got three older brothers who are much more so blokey than I am. Um, uh, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> not that difficult actually <laughs> to be more blokey than me. But there you go. Um, I just felt, how is it that I, of all people, come come to have the great honour to ordain someone? It just seemed incredible, and I felt this immense sense of good fortune, of almost unbelievable luck. How had I got from where I started? I was very very unhappy as a child. I had a very unhappy childhood. How had I got from there? to here, to walking back from an ordination kuti. Um, yeah, so I think every time we feel that sense of not just good fortune, but unwanted good fortune, unbe unbelievable luck, um, it's having something that you never deserved. It's, it's, got all, it's got that kind of quality to it. And I think it always has. Um, Any time you feel that, that's a sign you're really making spiritual progress. Um, that's the sign of it. Yeah. Um, yes, and you know, I, when I talk, when, when I want to talk about Vimalakirti, seeing through egotism, uh, seeing through the self, um, I've even I'm becoming a bit nervous of this language. Um, particularly, I've becoming I'm very reluctant to use this language of insight. Um, I'm currently writing a book on the five great stages of spiritual life, and uh, I'm trying to write it without mentioning it. Um, uh, <laughs> Not the five great stages, but insight, if you know what I mean. Um, I, th I think for modern Westerners, it's probably not useful. I don't know, I'm not a Buddhist scholar, but I, I think as a metaphor for Westerners, it's really not very useful. Uh, my own thinking about it at the moment has been that um, 
the Western mindset is so deeply uh, commodified. Um, I think that goes right to our core, is that we can't help but see things as commodities. Um, you know, whether that's a lovely flat white I just had from the, <laughs> uh, from the, from the trendy cafe next door, uh, or whether that's insight, if you see me. We can't help but, I think, us Western, modern, sophisticated, so Westerners, I know we don't use that term anymore, it's very difficult to think of the term now, because what we mean by the West is everywhere, sort of thing, uh, post-industrial, post-technical, you know, and so on, is, is this very deep uh, tendency to commodify ex- everything, including experiences. It's one of my nervousness about the otherwise very interesting and very important um, discovery by the world at large of mindfulness. I've been teaching mindfulness-based cognitive uh, therapy at the LBC, and I've been teaching mindfulness. But I'm nervous of it becoming a commodity, something you can have, something that you can learn, something horror, hon- horror that you could become an expert in. I just think that uh, our Western minds are so deeply immured in commodification that we, even when we're trying not to, I think, can't help but uh, approach things in that way. Um, so I think it's much better to leave the language of insight, even the language of seeing through egotism, any language that looks like you could do it uh, yourself in the privacy of your own mind. I'm not saying that it's not enti- there's not a truth in that. There clearly must be. But I don't think it's a truth that, that us post-industrial <laughs> Westerners can do very easily. I think we're starting from the wrong place and it's probably not very useful. Um, so that was one sort of reflection I had on this whole question of seeing through self. Because even that sounds like something you might do and get a sort of prize for. Um, I actually heard somebody recently saying, oh yes, so-and-so is seen through himself. He's seen through egotism. What, you know, what does one say? You know, oh, jolly good. <laughs> jolly good, that's nice. You know, what did you say? You know, yeah, it's very, very difficult to know what to say. Yeah? Um, so I, I don't want to use that kind of language, and I think in about it, he's obviously been very cautious of that kind of language. Um, the, other, the other reflection I've been having around this whole question of um, seeing through the self, which is basically the question of the reflective element of spiritual life, that you do it on your, on your own, with your mind, by your mind. Absolutely vital to spiritual life. You can't have a spiritual life without that uh, working on your mind, with your mind. Um, one of the things I've been noticing in myself and my people I see around me, how difficult it is to go beyond ideas. Um, how very much we live from ideas. And again, this might be a peculiarly Western phenomenon, that we live so much from thought, from ideas. So even our approach to spiritual life so easily can become just another set of ideas. Even our talk about mindfulness can just become another set of ideas. Um, it does seem to me really very difficult to actually have your spiritual life lived through your life, rather than just some interesting things you can say. It's very difficult as well when you're an order member because you're called upon to give talks like this and you get better and better at putting ideas together and sounding rather coherent. But they're just ideas, you see what I mean? You, you can, then you can start thinking, oh, I'm really good at this, perhaps I've gained insight. Um, you, know, you, you, you can put the ideas together so they look rather, you look rather impressive. But they're, they're, just, they're ideas, and ideas are valuable and important, 
But spiritual life is supposed to be lived out in life, which includes ideas. But I think for modern Westerners, we're so idea-based, so thought-run, so head-run, if you see what I mean. Um, a lot more to say about that. It was, I, I think there is a lot more we need to think about. How do we, you know, sort of practice that isn't just a sort of idea practice, if you see what I mean. I think it's probably more men are more prone to it than women, a sort of uh, living from their ideas, I don't know. One always rather fears making any gender statements, but uh, I think that's possibly the probably the case. Um, I mean, I think Bante Sangaracha is quite right. It's better to think of spiritual life as having this issue of spiritual death, and spiritual death is when you see through egotism, really, <laughs> see through self. Um, and the word death is important. It's completely right metaphor. Um, it's not a letting go, which is too... Uh, slight, it's a death analogous with your actual death, if you see what I mean. And it feels like a death. It doesn't feel like a letting go. Yeah? Um, so um, it's better, I think, to think in terms of spiritual death and to think in terms of spiritual rebirth um, and to think of in terms of, you know, Sabuti and Bante's paper, I don't know, I hope people have read it, which is about the suprapersonal force. I, I really like that paper. I hope people have read it. I really recommend that you read it because I think it's another attempt to talk about the goal of spiritual life without this Western danger of commodification, uh, of setting out our stall, as it were, creating our own brand and all that sort of thing. Um, if we think of it as a suprapersonal force working through us and working through us moreover, especially in intensive relationship in a community of like-minded practitioners, then that's la less likely for me to make a commodity into. Uh, it's less likely something that I can make special about myself. If it's about us together trying to feel this suprapersonal force, um, then it's not mine. I'm just happening to stand at the front at the moment to conduct this bit. Um, do you see what I mean? So I do think that is a much better way of thinking about it, which is really what's being described here. Um, ba basically, Vinod Kurti is saying, once there's spiritual death, once I've seen through self, once self has died, um, once I, then I see things, all things as being constructed, being confected, uh, not being ultimately real. That's, that's what happens when you spiritually died. You see things, there they are, the houses, the northern quarter, I believe, um, all the same, the, the old, uh, all these old um, factories around here. There they are, and that they're, they're somehow changed like a rainbow. Uh, they become rainbow-like, not literally, but they don't have any fixed essence. Um, a rainbow is a good image, isn't it? Because you see it, you can photograph it, you can show it your friends, you can say, look, a rainbow, but you can never touch it. You could never, it's to do with light going on water droplets, and that's to do with the back of your eye. Um, I don't know whether badgers see it or dogs can see it, probably not. Uh, it's to do with the, the, the nature of our eye. Um, and yet you can photograph it, you can share it with people, you can put it on Facebook. Um, but does it exist or not, if you know what I mean? In a way, it's a very good image because this whole language of non-existence can look like it literally doesn't exist. But a rainbow gets a bit closer, doesn't it? Because you actually, it's a shared experience as well. Um, 
to do with human machinery, as it were, to use that awful word. Um, so Vinlikurti is saying, when, when there's spiritual death, that's how you see things. Um, and then, on the basis of spiritual death, arises spiritual rebirth. And a spiritual rebirth is basically trying to describe what arises when self dies. Um, what arises when self dies. And what Vimalakirti is saying is what arises is the great love. It's not saying I make it arise, because there's no I to make it arise. He doesn't will it into being. He doesn't think, oh, and it'd be rather handy if I loved people as well, because that would be a bit more useful. Uh, that would mean make, make it easier to teach them. Just as soon as spiritual death arises, he sees things like, these, like rainbows, as it were, um, analogously, and that seeing is also love, is the great love. Um, so that spiritual rebirth is this arising of great love, spontaneous compassion. Um, yeah, so I think that's interesting. The dra- I mean, it actually uses the word spontaneous compassion. Uh, so I think that is the drama that's being played out in this, sh- this dialogue. Interestingly, the next part of the dialogue is how does the Bodhisattva's joy arise? Which I thought was very interesting as well. You've got, I see things as they are, they're like the moon reflected in um, a pond. When I see things like that, there's love. And when I see things, when I love, there's joy. It's, it's basically the, the sort of sequence, I think, of the argument in the, in the poetic sense. Um, I, think I also thought it was interesting that the first thing he says is just as I have realised the Dharma so should I teach it to living beings mm-hmm. so his first response before he talks about what the it is which is the great love he wants to teach that's the first thing he thinks of so in other words to the degree to which you love you act um, if you don't act you don't love um, I remember, I remember Ratnaguna's talk um, quite a few years ago now where he talked about a sentimental emotion which comes from, um, was, a, was from a um, philosopher of music whose name escapes me. Roger Scruton. Yes, Roger Scruton. Not very well liked because he's rather, anyway, never mind, right wing. But um, one of the, he, he makes, he's, he's got a wonderful argument about sentimental emotion. He says that sentimental emotion is basically any emotion that you feel that people will um, applaud you for. Uh, so there's sentimental pity, sentimental indignation, sentimental love, uh, but there's no such thing as sentimental spite or sentimental depression. And he, he's saying it's just because no one will uh, think well of you for it. Yeah. So sentimental emotions are emotions that uh, you're doing uh, they, they, to, to get... Um, other people's approbation, get other people's approval, get other people's um, respect, you see what I mean? So that's why you can have sentimental indignation, but not, you, you can't have sentimental resentment, because nobody admires you for sentimental resentment. So what he's saying, I think, is that genuine love leads to action. Um, if it doesn't lead to action, it, doesn't, it isn't love. So if you have a hot date and they say, they, I love you, you think, great, and they say, and I'll see you next week. I've got, I've got, I've got a busy timetable this week. You think, you might doubt that they actually do love you. Yeah? Um, if someone says they love opera and they never go, they don't love opera. It's as simple as that, really. So we can test the reality of love by how much we act on it. To the degree we act on it, 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 it it's real. And of course, that acting is also um, 
to do with what you will into being in your mind. Yes, and I want, I was, I'm struck uh, by the fact that it is a dialogue. Um, this is a lovely thing, one of the lovely things about the sutra is it's a dialogue. Um, Manjushri is clearly, a, obviously stands for wisdom here, as he always does. But it's interesting that he's asking Vimlakirti. I know Ratnaguna was speaking more about Vimlakirti this morning, and I think talking about him as a, as a, as a sangha, which I, I thought was very uh, interesting, actually. Um, um, but somehow wisdom is asking what? To tell them about the nature of things. I, I wanted to think of Vimlakirti as a kind of mystery, um, that uh, he's, not, he's not a figure of something, He's just Vimlakirti. I mean, he doesn't stand for something. He is this mysterious dot, dot, dot. <laughs> he stands for a kind of mystery um, because he, there he is in the world. He's supposed to be ill and he's obviously not ill. He's in the world and out of the world. He's a mystery. He's sort of almost above wisdom, obviously, and is being treated as that, in that way. Um, so it's as if wisdom is asking mystery about how things are and then on the basis of that, saying, and how does that affect your relationship with other people? That seems to me to be the, the drama of the dialogue, is of wisdom asking mystery to tell me about the depth of things, because I only know them from a wisdom point of view. <laughs> you see what I mean? I don't really, therefore, know them, because to say anything like wisdom or compassion, or love or joy, is to take a step away from reality and start to think about it. Um, Vimlakirti represents reality itself, a mystery. So the the last part of my talk, I just thought, let's try and be a bit more practical. Um, Although I think it is very important to think of the great love and to think of how that arises out of wisdom. Uh, In fact, it arises out of mystery. Um, But I wanted to uh, give you a few pointers to what I call the precursors of love. And I thought I'd give you a few pointers to the precursors of wisdom. Because in this text, which is exquisitely um, Buddhist, as it were, uh, right down to its core, um, that's what it's saying, isn't it? It's saying you can't really think of one without the other. When I see things, when I see the world as the moon in a, in a, a lake, there is love. You can't, it's all, almost should be hyphenated. You can't say this happens, then this. So I want to talk a bit about both although I, for some strange reason I want to do it the other way around. So the precursors to love, first of all. Um, I've talked a bit about general, uh, grat- gratitude, this sense of good fortune, and I think that is something we can consciously cultivate. Um, if you're having trouble, if I'm having trouble feeling um, goodwill to people, then I need to reflect on the fact that I'm being given to. Um, they did a study a long time ago now with... Um, people thinking of five things every night, of things that they were grateful for. And uh, after two weeks, those, the people that did that, as opposed to people who did, I think one, one set thought of sort of any five things, another set of sorts of things that they found difficult that day. The people who'd done reflection, uh, remembering the five things they felt grateful for were rem- incredibly happier after two weeks than the other two sets of people, the other two control groups. So really simple, all you need to do to get closer to the great love, is every night you go to bed, think of five things that day that you feel grateful for, that's been valuable. If your mood starts to go down, 
uh, just get your pad out every night and write down five things that you feel grateful for. Um, after two weeks, you'll be considerably happier. But the main thing I wanted to talk about as a precursor to love is um, uh, generosity. Uh, love is love is. Some, I mean, I, I sort of wonder about love. I don't. Know, I suppose you. I suppose you do as well. Does does one ever feel it? <laughs> um, I remember when my father died. You know, I was very sort of close to my father by the end, um, but I'd had a difficult relationship when I was young. And when my father died, I remember thinking, I don't seem to feel very much. That's a bit worrying. I thought perhaps I'm Frankenstein or something. Um, it can be quite sh- frightening, can't it? Do do I feel these rather grand emotions like love? Never mind great love, but do I feel love? Do I feel meta? Slightly worrying, at least to me, if it can be. Um, there's a lot that, that film of, of um, what's that film at the moment about uh, Jefferson? No, that's Lincoln. Yeah, very very interesting conversation where one of the characters is saying, I'm trying to help people, I don't like them. Uh, I was really struck by that. He said, it doesn't mean I like people, I just want to, they, they, things should be better for them, I want to help them. Um, and I thought that was closer to love, actually. Um, I'm trying to, he's, in other words, he's not, he's not um, sentimentalising people, he's not sort of valuing feeling. He's saying, no, I want to help people, it doesn't mean to say I like them. You know I, mean? I, th- I thought that was closer to love in a certain sense, because it was more to do with action. I've known people who say they love people and don't seem to do very much. But generosity seems to me to be the great thing that we can do, isn't it? We can reflect on the things we've been given and we can give. It's like really simple. And when you give, you don't need to be in a good state, you don't need to think you're a spiritual person, you don't need to think anything, do you? Just say, do you fancy a cup of tea? And as soon as you say, do you fancy a cup of tea? And you go off and make it. You've changed the world a bit, haven't you? It can be like that as well, can't you? You're in, you're in the office, everyone's going, staring into that screen. We're living from one screen to another now, aren't we? We go, a screen at work, and we all have a screen before we go to work, then a screen at work, and then another screen when we get home, and you think, God, I'm tired of working on my computer. I'll watch a DVD. So you go, um, <laughs> on my computer. Um, we just go from one screen to another. Anyway, when, when um, in this life of ours, living from one screen to another, when you suddenly think, oh, hang on, why don't I just make everyone a cup of tea? In that moment, you change the world. And not only have you changed it for you, you've actually changed it for other people. It's not very much, but it has an effect. It really does. And you can do it. It's not difficult. You don't have to be any, anything or anyone to be able to do it. So I think probably the, the stress should be on generosity rather than love. Love, let's hope, eh? Let's hope. It's, probably, it's perhaps not our business sometimes to know whether we love. Like, like my very close friend Parambandu, I've lived with him... For so long now, I must have lived with him for, let me think, I don't know, about 25 years. Um, just half my life, pretty much. Um, you know, I've lived with him all this time, and I suppose I love him, but I wouldn't know. <laughs> the only time I know, like one time I was on retreat and he was late arriving. He was in the car and he was late. It's very unlike Paramount to be late for things. They're quite like me being late for things, but it's not very like him. And I really worried immediately. Um, and I felt that worry showed me, oh yes, there's love here. But I don't particularly feel that in relationship to him. Um, it's similar with my own teacher, with our teacher, Sangrachita. I, obvi- I definitely love Sangrachita, but I don't necessarily always even quite like him in a certain sense. He can be rather difficult at times and difficult to understand. Um, but I definitely love him, but I don't, you don't necess- it doesn't mean to say you feel a lot. 
Um, so if we think that love means feeling a lot, I think we sort of trip ourselves up and think perhaps we don't love. Actually, it's better to look at what have you done with your life. I've, the last 26 years, I've tried to, as in very imperfectly devoted to practicing Dante's vision of the Dharma, that suggests I love my teacher. I, my own theory is, and I've, is that, you, that, that Buddhism doesn't work unless you love your teacher. I, I think that um, we need to love the teacher. Otherwise, why would we do what they want us to do? You know I mean? A grudging respect isn't good enough. Um, a sort of va- words like value, I think you've got a good you know, perception of things. None of that's good enough. You, my own theory is that you have to love. And then if you love, you'll do things. You know what I mean? It's, it's like that with children, isn't it? You don't necessarily like them, you don't agree with them, they get on your nerves, but you love them, therefore you'll get tea ready for them, things like that, and say, could you have some more broccoli? You know what I mean? <laughs> but you don't necessarily experience it as love, do you? You just think, you know, you need to eat some more broccoli. One mouth more mouthful, please, is what I've been doing recently. And then I say, and another. But you just said one. I said, yes, but let's have one more. Yeah, but why? And so on. <laughs> um, I won't go in my niece, he's rather gorgeous. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so, uh, where was I? <laughs> Love, I've gone completely off the point. Uh, generosity, thank you. Um, yeah, so, um, I think that is, it would be better to think of generosity rather than love. And without generosity, um, my own feeling increasingly the spiritual life itself doesn't work. I, 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 I've, do, I've come to this point of view from extrapolating from one or two friends, I'm afraid, who shall remain name, nameless. Uh, one or two friends of mine with very, very... Um, deep sense of things, a very, um, a sort of a deep reach, I think, into, into things. Um, this one friend in particular, you hear the talk, I just think, God, that's so good. You're so in tune with the Dharma. Uh, but actually, he doesn't give very much. He's really quite uh, ungenerous. Yeah? And um, it feels like, so the spiritual life doesn't move. It's as if life itself is a sort of energy which has to move. And if, if it doesn't move, it doesn't, if you don't give, it doesn't move. I mean, I really feel it more and more at that level, that it's something almost magical, um, that the universe itself is made of little particles which get activated when you start giving. Um, and once you activate them, things start to happen to you. Life changes, new things arise. To, the universe gets going, if you see what I mean. However deep you are, however... Uh, penetrating your perceptions, however valuable your meditations. Without giving, spiritual life doesn't seem to me to move. Uh, it doesn't seem to really get going. Conversely, I've known people who are very generous, but not very deep, if you see um, But you have a sense that they're moving. You have a sense that their spiritual life is definitely on the go. And I think that's much more important than other small ethical matters. You know. um, for many of us, I think whether we're generous or not is a great ethical issue, not you know, the little bits and bobs that we fall into, little silly things that we get into. So I, I, I'd want to really talk about generosity as the precursor to love. Um, that's something we can do. Without doing that, I really feel that spiritual life doesn't move. The universe, it seems to me, in some almost quasi-scientific sense, doesn't activate unless you give. As soon as you give, the world starts to move. And it does, doesn't it? You just do a really tiny thing, and the world, you can feel the world starting to move, the universe, the air around you starting to move. Um, 
irrespective of anything else about you, if you said to me. Um, so that, that'll do for that. I had more things, but let's, let's move on. Um, so I want to talk about the precursor to wisdom, because I think we're try- having to do the both. Uh, love wisdom all the time, or wisdom love all the time. Um, and of course I want to talk about study. Um, I want to recommend Ratnaguna's wonderful book on reflection, which you know was very, very much needed. Um, I think uh, we need to be thinking. There's a strong trend, especially in English cultural life, which is anti-thought. I mean, there's so many strong trends in British life, but um, there's an anti-thought trend, and there's also a rather sort of over-the-top thought trend, trend if you know I mean. But in spiritual circles, I think generally there's an anti-thought trend, uh, even an anti-head trend. You can see that why that is, because, as I said earlier, it's so easy to live spiritual life as an idea, as just a thought. So I can understand why there might be that trend, and I think that is something real that we need to address more and more. We need, to, we need to be, I think, teaching much more about body and much more about Vedana and much more about friendship and so on, so that... We're, we're living spiritual life with ourselves, not with our head. But people almost seem to forget that the head is part of your body. <laughs> You're in your head, you think, well, that is still part of my body, I haven't actually left. You see? And um, thought itself is a wonderful thing. There is an awakening of the mind, just as there is an awakening of the heart. And I actually tell you what, you need the both. You see this in, in, in creative work, any great piece of creative work, is both an awakening of the heart and also an awakening of the head. Uh, they say, for instance, don't they, that Mozart is uh, mathematically perfect. Um, just this morning I was listening to Schubert's Trout Quintet, and it's pure joy, uh, absolutely pure joy, and slightly unusually for Schubert, um, and uh, absolutely rigorous in its thinking, in its own musical thinking. It's, actually, it's interesting, Schubert, because he's not a difficult... Apparently he's quite easy to play, I mean, for people who can play at that level. He's not technically terribly demanding, because he himself couldn't play the piano very well. He used to say, can I just play you my recent one before I Because <laughs> he wasn't very good at playing the piano. Um, so, um, I don't know why I'm going to that. Um, I'm afraid this is what I'm doing more and more. It might be at my age. So, uh, yes, we need, thought is a deep matter. We need to, uh, an opening of our mind. Um, we need to do that in study. We need to do that in reflection. I think we particularly need to do that in communication. Uh, again, because I don't think we need to think in terms of my wisdom. I think we need to think of how could we be wise? Um, how could we uh, find love? Not how, do I, how can I come and then give it to you? But how can we discover love? How can we d- become wise? Um, it's very often in communication that you really think. One of the reasons I've been teaching all this time, I've, I think pretty much, I think it's fairly true, since I was ordained, I think I've taught probably every week, at least every week I'm in London. It's very unusual. In fact, this week I was going to be a week where I didn't teach because I didn't do my Tuesday class, I didn't do the Wednesday class. But then I thought, oh no, I did Mitra study and I'm doing this. <coughs> and um, one of the reasons for me why that's been so valuable, it's, it's in talking, it's in interaction, it's in questions, it's in especially teaching newer people who haven't got Buddhist jargon that makes me think, that makes my mind open up, that makes this awakening of the mind. You know what I mean? Um, so we need that kind of reflection, study, deep thought, uh, a shared life of communication, so that we become wise. And I think, as it were, as a, as a, 
not quite a counterbalance to that, but as an echo to that, we need solitary time. Um, where we are actually doing nothing, um, really nothing, just meditating and doing nothing, and trying to apprehend things more deeply. Um, we need the both. We need times away from everyone, uh, even if, you can, if we can, fairly you know, substantial periods of time, where we're just meditating and reflecting, uh, perhaps reading Ranagun's book. Um, you can do his, the exercises he has in the book. Um, we need that solitary time, and then we need to come into a, a vivid and intense interaction with each other, out of which wisdom can come. I've, I've actually been party to or heard so many alienated discussions about the Dharma. It's a great shame. You can sometimes hear, particularly things like non-duality seems to be a popular favourite for alienated discussions. Um, you had to be t- people to these dreadful discussions about the Dharma, which feel so alienated and alien. It feels like um, a travesty. It's like embarrassing, if you know what I mean, um, uh, to talk about the Holy Dharma in that terribly... Uh, separated, uh, split sort of way. Um, so yeah, so the, the, those are my two precursors. The precursor to love, I think, is generosity, because that's something we can do. Um, we don't need to worry about whether we've got it or not, uh, which love can easily set us off into. And the precursor to wisdom is deep thought, uh, study, reflection, intensive communal life, and an intensive solitary life, doing the both. So perhaps that's enough for now. Um, what I've been trying to explore is a sort of, sort of few little notes to this, uh, the beginning of this chapter, this wonderful chapter, um, which I think is taking us through the jar- drama of mystery, of saying, when I look at things, I see them like this. When I see them like that, there's love. Um, and what I want to do is give love, if it's me. When I see them like that, there's love. Um, and that's how things are. That's just how things are. Um, it reminded me, and again, I think I got this from Ratnaguna. I've been very influenced by Ratnaguna. In fact, I am just a sort of more comical version. <laughs> 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 we're about, we're sort of quite slim, both of us as well. Uh, and we both wear dances sometimes. Um, um, I remember him talking, I think, again, it's really stayed with me, that um, I think it's a Zen story of, um, you know, you're, you're, you're dreaming, and you're dreaming that you're being chased by a tiger, a man-eating tiger, and you are running through the undergrowth, terrified, and your friends and your family are all running through the ter- uh, undergrowth, terrified, and then you wake up, and you just say, oh, oh, what a relief, it was a dream. I mean, it, we've all had that experience. It's become a bit of a cliche, but it's true, isn't it? Sometimes you have horrible dreams and you wake up, oh, oh that was, I was just dreaming. Oh, okay, okay, that's good. Um, you have that lovely sense of relief. But then you need to imagine that you've woken up and then you sort of, as it were, look back and the dream is still going on. That all of your friends, your family, uh, your niece, your daughter, your father, they're all still dreaming and they're all still terrified. Is what I mean. And... Um, you, all you'd want to just say is, oh no, no, you're, you're dreaming. You're, you're dreaming. Wake up, wouldn't you? You wouldn't need to try and feel great love. You just say, oh no, you've, no, no, you've just got it wrong. <laughs> you know I mean? You, it would just naturally arise, wouldn't it? So often stories communicate these things better than uh, concepts. 
it would just naturally arise. You'd think, yes, but it's just not like that. I know it feels like that, and I know it feels completely real. It did to me a minute ago, but it, really, trust me, it's just not like that. You can, you're all right. Wake up, you know. Uh, and that would be uh, the great love, wouldn't it? And it w- you wouldn't need to make it happen, you wouldn't need to will it, it would just be there. Just immediately, just as looking at you, and you think, oh no, you're, you're still dreaming. Oh, it was, no, no, it's not like that at all. So I thought I'd just finish by, by just taking us through the argument of this first opening of the sutra, which is, I think, so wonderful. Just, I'll just sort of praise you those, those first two great questions, and we'll finish at that. Thereupon, Manjushri, the crown prince, addressed the Lichavi Vimlakoti. Good sir, how should a bodhisattva regard all living beings? Vimlakoti replied, Manjushri, a bodhisattva should regard all living beings as a wise man regards the reflection of the moon in water, or as a magician regards men created by magic. Manjushri then asked further, Noble sir, if a bodhisattva considers all living beings in such a way, how does he generate the great love towards them? Vimlakirti replied, Manjushri, when a bodhisattva considers all living beings in this way, he thinks, just as I have realised the Dharma, so should I teach it to all living beings. Thank you very much.